All right, good morning, church. If you did not grab a handout and you would like one, they are going around. But welcome to week seven of Biblical Theology of Grief. This morning we'll be looking at God's work of holiness through grief. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we once again slow down and refocus all of our attention upon you. Father, again, we ask for your forgiveness for the way our minds have run to and fro and have been placed on all sorts of circumstances around us and not upon you and your glory. Father, we ask that you would calm our hearts and our minds this morning that you'd help us to fix our eyes upon your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us. We praise you that you are a God of comfort who comforts us in our afflictions. God, we pray that you would teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we gather this morning, many of us would most likely openly confess that we want to be happy. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and if you want to be happy and show me who wants to be happy, but I would venture to guess that most of us want to be happy. As a matter of fact, we often spend our time trying to pursue happiness. And then when circumstances come into our life that make us unhappy, we begin to ask all sorts of questions. But since this is a Bible study this morning, I hope you have your Bibles with you. I am going to give you an assignment right now. I want you right now to open up your Bibles and find me the chapter verse that says, Be happy, for I am happy. I hear giggles. I don't see many Bibles flipping pages. <laughs> yes, first Fleshalonians, yes. All those uh, forbidden books. It's not there. We laugh because we know it's not there. However, it's not often a pursuit that we think we need to pursue. It's happiness. What does God say? They say, be happy for I am happy. He says, be holy for I am holy. John Flavel said this. He said, quote, what health is to the heart holiness is to the soul. I want you to think about that this morning because, like I said, we often chase after just happiness. And yet, we are commanded, as we'll see this morning, to seek after holiness. In the most general sense, it's this term sanctification is the concept of being set apart as holy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states this, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. More and more. Just pick that up. There is a sense now in our Christians' lives as we look at this idea of holiness or God's work of holiness in our life during grief 
that this process of sanctification for the believer is a lifelong process. It is being conformed into the image of Christ, and it is a work of God's grace in us. If you're looking on your handout this morning, I have yet to hit any of those. Um, We will, Lord willing, get there. This is by means of an overview, but sanctification, it's important that we know it is past, present, and future. Other words you might hear defining sanctification might be definitive, progressive, and final. And so let's talk about these this morning. So we understand this process of sanctification. What is it? Well, past sanctification or definitive sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work of setting us apart as holy unto Christ. It's what constitutes us as saints. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, meaning God has drawn you to Christ in repentance and faith, then you're referred to as a saint. That's because of the work of sanctification. You have been set aside, set apart as holy. I love what William Grinnell says about this. This is Old English, and bear with me, because it is a little different. But William Grinnell says this. He says, Thou must be righteous and holy before thou canst live righteously and holyly. How about that word? It means you must first be righteous and holy before you can ever try to live that way. And so when we talk about this past or definitive sanctification, you were made holy. It is a positional holiness that you are in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It is Christ's past. It's based on what Christ has done. And so we are now holy through our union with Christ. That is past, definitive sanctification, that we are holy through our union with Christ. But there's also what's considered present sanctification or progressive sanctification. And this is the Holy Spirit's work of enabling us to grow in practical holiness. You know, we have some common expressions. We see some of these in Scripture. We speak of them amongst one another, that we're walking with God. We're we're following God. We're being a disciple. We're growing. We're obeying. We're abiding. All of that would be this idea of this progressive sanctification, of becoming more and more like Christ, of dying more and more to sin and living more and more in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this regarding this. He says, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. Because we have been made holy in Christ, now we're called to live as those who are holy in Christ. And that is our progressive sanctification. And then there's future or final sanctification. And that's the Holy Spirit's work of conforming us into Christ's image at his return. Complete perfection. And so, to recap that, before we get into our points this morning, we are holy now. 
positionally based upon our union with Christ, we are holy. But we also are growing in holiness, which is practically speaking, living out that union with Christ. In a practical sense, we are growing in holiness, and we will be perfectly holy in complete perfection when we see our Lord and Savior face to face. Said a little differently, and we'll get into our points this morning, we could put it this way. We are currently in a state of perfect holiness before God. We're currently in a state of perfect holiness before God. But we're yet in a condition of perfect holiness. We are growing in that condition and will be perfected when Christ returns. So, with that as our introduction this morning, and with our time limited this morning, we will now get into our first point. You'll see this morning we've broken this down into three parts. Sanctification, the calling. Sanctification, the conduct. And sanctification, the context. If you would, if you have a Bible this morning, open up to 1 Peter. We spent some time in previous weeks looking at this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And for each of our points this morning, we will begin in this same passage. So if you want to mark it, we will return there a few times this morning. Reading a portion of this that we covered in a previous week, we're going to look at it again, starting in verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you skip down with me to verse 14? Beginning at 14, we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So when we begin this idea of sanctification, it is the calling for the people of God to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And so we're commanded, be holy as I am holy. We're going to unpack that passage a little bit more as we go through each of our points this morning. But know this, this is for every single one of us who has been gifted repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we are to be holy. 
that the Christian is no longer who they used to be before Christ, but they are transformed and are now walking in holiness. Remember, I will come back to that First Peter passage, but in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we can't see it any clearer, God's will for us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, for this is the will of God. You ready? Shockingly, it does not say your happiness. It says your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And it goes through some practical sense that we'll uncover later, but it says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now I can imagine some of you here this morning might be questioning, I thought this is a biblical theology of grief class. What are we doing here? Once again, this morning is God's work of holiness through grief. And we will get there this morning, but we're understanding that foundationally, this is God's will, that we grow in holiness. He, Hebrews 12, verse 14, clearly tells that we're to strive for the holiness that without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a big deal because God is holy. God doesn't choose us in Christ to have us remain in our sin. His grace transforms us from those who once would have been identified as some type of habitual sin to those who are identified now as holy. God's work of grace. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? I'll give you a second to get there. I want you to see this sanctification that occurs in a believer's life. Those who were once identified with habitual sin, who God's work of grace works in them, so they are now identified as holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we read this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Stop there for a second. Anytime we read, do not be deceived, do you know why it's there? Because we would naturally be deceived in that area. And so we are warned, once again, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop there, because if you look at that list... Surely somewhere in that list, we have been identified there at some point in our lives. But Paul doesn't finish writing there. He continues in verse 11. 
And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God's work of grace, taking us from one place of darkness and making us light. God's work of grace, delivering us from the bondage of sin, that we no longer are identified by those habitual sins, but his work of grace that makes us holy, which segues us right into the second point here. Sanctification is also about the conduct. And so if you marked or, or put a bookmark in First Peter, we're going to begin there again in that passage from First Peter. Because Peter writes about this. In 1 Peter, the same passage we read earlier this morning, starting in verse 14 this time, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. What does he write? In some of your conduct? Is that what he says? If you're following along, you see he says, in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to stop there real quick, do a self-assessment. We will not go around the room and divulge these things publicly. But is all of your conduct holy in every area of your life? Or there are pet sins that you hold on to and you justify by saying, well, this is just my weakness. This is just, you know, I'm Italian. It's because I'm Italian that I'm this way. Do we justify it on some other things other than God's will for us that we should be holy? Peter writes, you're to be holy in all your conduct. Puritans often wrote about the mortification of sin. It's the continually putting to, to death every form of sin. Do you know it doesn't happen just once and then sin just goes away? Have you ever fought with sin to put sin to death? And it continues to come back and it continues to, to come at you. And it's almost like we read in the early stages of Genesis where sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Mortification is that continual process to put it to death. John Owen said this. He said, it will no otherwise die but by being gradually and constantly weakened. And then he goes on and says, spare it and it heals its wounds and it recovers its strength. What does that mean? It means we must completely cut off sin, that we can't flirt with it, we can't keep a reservation for it, because if we do, it will keep coming back at full strength. That process of the mortification of sin, my friends, is a continual process throughout this life. I would say it's a daily process, but I go on to say it's a moment-by-moment -moment process. It is not something you wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to put to death all of these things and I'm going to die to self today. Well, when does that get applied? You got to get out of bed and walk, right? You got to get out of bed and live it. 
and you can't do it in your own strength. It is a constant dependence upon God. And so we continually seek to kill sin, and we continually seek to do the will of God, to live out the newness in Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses you are probably very familiar with. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? Well, salvation is monergistic. It's, it's what God does. But here we see something that is synergistic. It is God working in us and us abiding in that to put to death sin, and to live out the will of God. R.C. Sproul comments on these passages. He says this. He says, the Christian life requires, listen, the Christian life, R.C. Sproul says, requires hard work. Are you living the Christian life? Then you would agree with that. The Christian life requires hard work. He says, he continues, our sanctification is a process wherein we are co-workers with God. We have the promise of God's assistance in our labor, but his divine help does not annul our responsibility to work. Paul would say, I die daily. He would say he, he pummels his flesh into submission, that he disciplines himself. There was a participation on his part to pursue holiness, that it's an active part of God's people to do such. Way back in Isaiah chapter 1, I'll read it to you in the opening verses, Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, the command here is, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. How many actions are in there? I mean, it's over and over and over again. It's wash, it's make yourself, it's remove, it's cease doing this, learn this, seek that, correct this, bring this. There's a part of God's people that are to respond to obey God in every way. In every way. We know we recently finished up Ephesians, and there's a whole part of that letter, Ephesians 4, that goes through put off these things of your former life, and put on these that you'd walk in the newness of life in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. But rather than there, we've spent much time there. Let's go to Galatians instead. Another familiar passage, Galatians chapter 5. Go ahead and flip there with me. Galatians 5. Well, what's the secret sauce to walking in holiness? Ready? Here it comes. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
And then Paul's going to write about this, this dueling desires that if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you experience regularly. That there are desires of your flesh and there's desires of the Spirit. So look with me, verse 17, Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the works of the flesh are evident. Here they come. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I spoke earlier of some of us times we minimize sin and we say, well, this is just my weakness or it's my ethnicity. You know, I have Irish blood in me. That's why I drink lots of alcohol. Doesn't work that way. These are works of the flesh. These are what are so evident that we're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. So Paul will then contrast that to what is evidence of when we're walking in the spirit. Verse 22 of Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay, it's interesting to me when we read this, this is not fruit of your quote-unquote hard work. This is fruit of the Spirit, which means these things cannot be attained unless God's grace is working these out through you. Our work, our hard work, is of abiding in the Spirit and not in the flesh, of saying no to the flesh and yes to God. That's the hard work. It sounds so simple, right? Like, how hard is that? Just to say no and to say yes Sounds simple, but if you're living the Christian life, you know how hard that is. That the flesh has a wonderful appetite for things that bring it pleasure. And yet our thirst and our hunger should be after the things of God and to walk by his spirit to produce these fruits. The same argument Paul also states in, in Romans talking about the flesh and the spirit. Go ahead and flip over to Romans. I want you to see it this morning. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, we'll pick up in verse 5 this morning. Romans 8, starting in verse 5, which, by the way, in verse 1, he wrote, there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to flesh that out a little bit. No pun intended with flesh. Sorry, Pastor Matthew, I looked at you, and I know you're like, oh, a pun. <laughs> it wasn't intentional. <laughs> Uh, Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So here's this battle of, of flesh and spirit. 
Skip down to verse 13. We'll pull that out of there as well. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we got to be so careful this morning to understand this. We are not trying to put to death the deeds of the body so that we might inherit eternal life or that we might earn salvation from God or the favor of God. It's just the opposite. It's evidence of his grace working in us that we're able to put these things to death. Remember, in order to walk in holiness and righteousness, I'll put it in modern-day English instead of the old English we got earlier, we have to first be righteous and holy. And we are holy and righteous with our un- through our union with Christ. And so we are able to now walk in righteousness and holiness. John Owen said this, He said, there is no imagination wherewith man is besotted more foolish, none so pernicious as this, that persons not purified, not sanctified, not made holy in this life should afterwards be taken into the state of blessedness, which consists in the enjoyment of God. What is he saying there? He's saying for the believer, for the one who professes the name of Christ, there should be seen in their life progressive holiness in their life, that they are being conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Do believers still sin? Some of you are like, no, of course we do. Of course we do. But if we were to plot it out and there was a trajectory of holiness that should be going this way, in righteousness and holiness... It should not be a plateau that we are the same as before Christ as we are now. And it definitely should not be a decline into further darkness. But in overall, looking at what is happening, we should see the work of God's grace through his spirit making us more and more holy. That we're no longer defined by habitual sin. Yes, we still fall into sin. We fall and yield to the temptation of sin. But it no longer controls us. We're no longer in bondage to it, and we're no longer defined by it. And so here we are at the final point. What is the context for sanctification? Again, the same passage that we have looked at for all of these points in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 6, Peter writes... In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter writing here? He's saying that our faith will be tested in times of suffering. And that that faith that is tested is purified in times of suffering. And before we're so quick to say, well, that's just not fair. Why isn't there another route? We always need to look at our Lord Jesus. Which we read about in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 and 8. Listen to this. Hebrews 
chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, speaking of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I don't know how that sits with you. I know we've brought that up before, that same passage. But when we look to how Christ, in, in, in full humanity, learned obedience, it was through a life of suffering. And so as we look at our own sanctification of growing in holiness, there will be challenges and trials that come into our lives. Times of grief and sorrow. Look at the way that Jesus prayed. Loud cries and tears. Those are moments of pain. Those are moments of grief. And we too will experience such things. Over and over again throughout the New Testament, I'll give you a handful of them this morning with our time remaining. But we see that the context for much of our sanctification, comes through times of suffering, times of trials. It is not when our faith is at the peak, but it is in those valleys that God works mightily to conform us into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Romans 5, starting verse 3. Paul writes, not only that, but we, listen, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And he goes on and says more, but what he's saying is, it is through suffering that God uses these things for my faith, which is also for my holiness, that I would be more like him. But it's interesting what Paul says. He says, we rejoice. Now, we, we need to define that because I'm headed to James, and you know James says something very similar, to count it all joy. Nowhere in the definition of this word does it necessarily mean that when trials come, you just jump up and click your heels and go, woo! But it's where you look to the character and promises of God and you cling to those. And because you know what God has said, you can trust in what he said. And so you can rejoice that even in the midst of that pain, God will work it out for your good and for his glory. Though it makes absolutely no sense to you. And you think of, couldn't there have been another way? It's funny, our Lord asked the same thing, didn't he? If there's any other way way would you take this cup from me and he pleaded with the father with the same thing to rejoice in our sufferings because god will not waste them to rejoice in our sufferings because we know what god has said he will do in the midst of that grief same reason james opens up his letter and says in james chapter 1 Starting in verse 2, count it all 
joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know what he's defining? Sanctification. That you might grow in holiness, that God will not waste this pain. Paul the Apostle not only wrote these truths, he believed these truths. He was convinced by them. As much as James was convinced by them, so was Paul. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, actually, you know, go ahead and turn there. We've got a little bit of text to read there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way. Second Corinthians 4, 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Let's skip down to verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. Now stop there. Did you read what he wrote previously, starting in verse 8? It didn't sound light to me. But it's a comparison. It's compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. This, although we read all these things, afflicted, crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, all these things, he says, for this light momentary affliction, what is it doing? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's work of sanctification often comes through our times of grief, our times of sorrow, our times of pain. And it's in those times that we are continually being conformed into the image of Christ. We need the holiness. We need to grow in that. We need the work of God to help us in that. We talked about beginning with just the pursuit of happiness. When I'm happy in all my circumstances, I'm often not thinking about holiness. I'm thinking about this feels good, I like that, and everything is good. But holiness matters. To be holy like God is holy. John Owen wrote, quote, He leads none to heaven, but whom he sanctifies on earth. This is a lifetime of being sanctified. J.C. Ryle would say this, he says, 
Where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. To grow in holiness. And God will by no means waste your suffering. He will use every moment of your grief ultimately for his glory and for your good. I'll end with this final quote by John Flavel. You've got another one in your handout, but John Flavel said, quote, the more afflictions you have been under, the more assistance you have had for this life of holiness. Read it again. The more afflictions you have been under, the more assistance you have had for this life of holiness. Let's pray together. Father, as we began this study this morning, we, many of us would agree with the statement that we often just want to be happy. We want the circumstances in our life to make us happy. We want to experience happiness, and we know that happiness is based upon what happens, and yet you offer joy that is eternal. But God, as we look at suffering and grief, it is not often what we want to turn to. So we thank you as we look to your word that you do not waste the suffering. You do not waste our grief, but you use it for our good and for your glory. That you use it to conform us into the image of your son. God, we praise you for sustaining us. We praise you for your work of your Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for delivering us from darkness and making us light and for strengthening us each day through your spirit to put to death sin and to live in Christ. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to abide in your spirit and to bear much fruit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.